Welcome, everybody, to Smarter. Uh, I'm your host, Jess Elmquist, and I have a great guest today. As you know, Smarter is really about leadership. It's about trends in the marketplace, and it's really about talent. And it's an opportunity for all of us to get smarter together. My guest is a good friend, a CFO at Phenom, a company that I actually work on as well, Davinder Athwal. Hey, Davinder, how are you? Thanks for being here today. Hey, Jess. Real pleasure to be here with you today. And I've been really looking forward to this uh, podcast. Uh, you know, I've seen some of the work you do. It's fantastic. I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, and um, we've got some great episodes that we've already put, you know, out into the world. And I think this is perfect timing, not only for you and I to be able to connect, but also to really engage with a CFO that has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the marketplace, but also a talent forward thinking CFO. I'm excited to dig into that. But before we do that, I think it would be great to be able to hear a little bit about your backstory and kind of introduce yourself to our listeners um, and your journey to the position that you're in today. Yeah, happy to share that with you. So I began my career uh, with PwC out in Silicon Valley, I think mid-1990s, you know, helping take a number of companies public. Uh, some of my clients were Yahoo, eBay, Netflix, as well as a whole bunch of others that have since been acquired or merged or just like basically fallen by the wayside. That just seems to be the nature of of, of the industry that we're in. Um, you know, what I've learned about myself is that I'm really attracted to disruptive companies that are trying to make a difference. And I'll start by saying that, you know, my, my journey to FINA was actually unexpected. <clears throat> I wasn't looking for a new job when I was contacted about the CFO role here. And to be honest, the only reason I took the call from the recruiter was because I was really intrigued about the fact that there's a venture-backed, high-growth software startup <clears throat> in Philly. And it just doesn't happen very often. Yeah, not uh, a hotbed for startups and technology, for sure. We're going to change that, but it hasn't been the case historically. That, yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I really came out to meet, uh, you know, with the folks out here, you know, I really out of curiosity just to kind of network and get to know them. Uh, but I'll say, Jeff, after meeting Mahi, you know, for that first time and understanding how Phenom is trying to help a billion people find the right job, I just knew this is where I belonged. You know, that meeting was even more powerful, you know, after I got home that night and began to really think about, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, we're all surrounded by people who we know personally, who for whatever reason are just not in the right job and how it's affected them and their families and like just their aspirations about, uh, you know, around life and things like that. And in my case, you know, the realization was it's my, actually my dad, you know, was a great example of that. Uh, just to kind of backtrack a little bit here. So my parents emigrated to the UK uh, from India in the mid 1960s. And in India, my dad was a, a military uh, engineer in a, an emerging field at the time uh, around electronics communication. And as he was preparing to transition to civilian life, uh, you know, what he found was that he was in really hot demand by local regional tech companies who were literally tripping over each other to hire him. And he assumed that this same dynamic would be true once he got to the UK. Uh, unfortunately for my dad, that's not how things played out. In the UK, he couldn't even get a response to like the countless applications that he had made. You know, and you kind of sit back and you wonder, well, what, what could have caused that? You know, what was it that the technology that he was using in India was that radically different from the UK? Hard to believe, really, because most of it came from the UK and the USA. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that that couldn't have been it. You know, actually, the more likely reason is that employers were using proxies to assess his skills and suitability for the work that they needed to get done. And unfortunately for my dad, he just didn't go to the right school or a school that they recognized. Uh, didn't work for a company that they recognized or have a brand behind him. And on top of all of that, you know, most Indians at the time in the UK uh, were manual factory workers who either didn't speak English or if they did, had a very odd accent. 
Um, in short, he just was not a normal candidate for the kind of jobs that he was looking for. So, you know, as I thought about that, you know, he really is the reason I joined Phenom's mission to help a billion people find the right job because, you know, I know, and I'm sure my dad knows this, that the right job for him is actually doing what he was trained to do for many, many mm -hmm. years, loved to do, and had done for, you know, a number of years at such a highly proficient level that you could say that people's lives literally depended upon it. Uh, you know, if only he was assessed on his actual skills and not some tenuous proxies that are in reality extremely poor indicator of success, you know, life could have been very different for him. And as a result of that, very different for me. But, um, you know, that, that, that's the short journey to, or the, the, the thumb that had got to a phenom. Well, it sounds like, you know, not only you're prepared vocationally, but you really actually had more of a heart, kind of a heartstring that got plucked here at Phenom. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I appreciate you actually sharing that personal story about your dad's journey, uh, because there is so much of what Phenom's about. And, you know, my journey to Phenom was a little irregular, too, as the CHRO here, because I was a customer for nine years. And one of the things that I found that Phenom did with the 20,000 people that my company hired annually is that it diminished that familiarity bias or some of those other pieces that can really impact. It could be intentional or unintentional, right? An unconscious thing mm -hmm. that people are making decisions, but it can be a, a real turning point for people vocationally. And so I think it is a piece of the purpose of helping a billion people find the right job. It's that let the right job is the key. And that's what I'm hearing from you too. It's like, you can find a job, but finding that right job that really hits all of the markers is important. And it sure sounds like, you know, from your journey professionally, you've had some great, uh, great opportunities. Like you were in kind of the hotbed of training financial minds, PwC and some of the, you know, the big, uh, the big consultative organizations, you get to dip into a lot of different places there. Did you find that those early opportunities to kind of have a broad impact across a lot of organizations helped you hone your skill as you focused in and became CFO of several different companies over the last few uh, couple decades? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I would say that I was blessed to be able to get the job at PwC, uh, particularly at a time when you know, this part of the market was just like literally taking off, right? So think about, again, mid-90s, Silicon Valley, just a lot of excitement about changing the world and the kind of companies that were coming out of that era. Um, and I was, you know, basically I started out at, at the lowest you know, kind of, uh, you know, role you could do, which was actually playing bagels for folks who are like doing all the kind of manual <laughs> work, right? Uh, but, you know, even that had, had its value, Jess, and it really taught me the value of kind of sticking it out, you know, persevering, helping the team, right? So there's a lot of the lessons learned along the way, you know, that aren't like directly hard technical skills, but just like how to approach things, how to approach people, uh, how to approach situations, like what's my role? How do I kind of sometimes be a leader? How do I sometimes be uh, a team member? You know, all these kind of things that are like really, I would say kind of soft skills or, uh, you know, things that you don't pick up in a spreadsheet or you don't pick up in school, uh, you know, absolutely were a big part of the training. Um, then, you know, along with that, I was like fortunate to have you know, worked alongside some really, really talented founders and other people that were running these companies and just kind of being able to tap into their mindset. Um, and I would say, you know, along that entire journey, kind of having, you know, that that benefit, having done a lot of hard work, you know, really has kind of brought me to where I am. And I kind of look back, you know, I would say every single day um, at every one of my jobs that I've had in the past, you know, like those formative years in particular. And there is always something I can draw on, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what I'm doing today, you know, from, from those days. 
Yeah, no, that I think that's important for a lot of the leaders uh, and aspiring leaders that listen to Smarter. You know, I think we can see people in their roles today and not realize that there was a bagel buying role at one point or another where you had to actually earn your keep. You had to kind of earn your stripes and be able to figure out how to persevere. I think perseverance is a, a really important skill. And we're going to talk a little bit about change a, a little later on. And when I think about you know, being in a world of constant and continuous change, perseverance becomes uh, a really important trait of any uh, organization, but any individual that wants to either lead self, lead process, or lead other people. So I think uh, that's that's actually a great kind of beginning journey piece. So I think the other piece, though, too, is I'm, I'm kind of glad that we have talked about getting you on the podcast until now, because, you know, just recently, some congratulations are in order because you were named the CFO of the year by the Philadelphia Business Journal. And so congratulations. And in some ways, I wanted to mention that now because it feels a bit like a, you know, one of those capstones, right, from this PwC entry level mm -hmm. analyst role to being a CFO who's been recognized amongst his peers uh, as someone who's doing something pretty outstanding. Uh, congratulations, first of all, but tell us a little bit about kind of that uh, that journey and that surprise of, uh, of getting that award and recognition. Yeah, well, hey, look, first of all, th thanks. Really appreciate the the warm congrats there, Jess. Uh, you know, it, look, it's a great honor. It really is to be recognized, uh, you know, by, by your peers, by experts as being one of the best, right? And we're in a market here in Philly where, there is no shortage of exceptional finance leaders. Yeah, great companies. And talent, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's, no it's doubt. who's who, right? So, so to be recognized among that group, it really does feel you know extra special uh, to, to to be to have that honor. Um, and look, I'd, I'd also be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to my team uh, here at Phenom who make all this possible, right? Because I do yeah, rely no on them to kind of basically keep me as you know effective as I can be. Uh, but look, it, it was a surprise to me, uh, you know, Jesse. You know, I, when, when I heard about this, it was not something that I was canvassing for or campaigning for. Um, you know, this is this is one of these what I would call a real award, right? This isn't something that you can pay for right. and, and kind of get to you know participate in it. Uh, but this is something that happens kind of really behind the scenes. Uh, you know, the, my understanding is the way this works is you know someone must have nominated me, and then there's got to be other people that second it, and they do some of their own sleuthing around. Um, you know, kind of around my background and people around my circle uh, to, to kind of come up with this. But it, but it is it is great. Look, you know, there's, a, there's maybe about 20 of us, I think, that got recognized this year. Um, and I got a chance to meet some of them. They're all like super business people, you know, kind of like the kind of CFOs that I would want to be, uh, you, you know, aspiring to if I was new, yeah. which is yeah. around, you know, people first, really around very high business acumen. Uh, none of these guys are your bean counter types, you know, that are kind of back office and, and, and shrinking, you know, kind of violence and things like that. So yeah. I feel like I'm a good company. You know, yeah, for sure. You know, that's actually a really good point because one of the one of the bullets I wanted to, you know, wanted to have us talk a little bit about because we've actually chatted about it in the past is that there's really been a transition of almost like a new mindset of the CFO. And I can't help but see um, the famous uh, Philadelphia sculpture in a frame behind you, uh, the love uh, love sculpture. But there seems to be less of a bean counter, although that's critical. Those are critical basic skills that every CFO needs to have is the ability to manage and uh, and take care of the P&L. Uh, but there almost seems to be an elevated sense uh, that uh, CFOs are more involved across the broad range of business, including the soft skills, 
like never before. So you would consider yourself and even some of these other uh, people that have been awarded this great recognition in Philly as almost um, a different era of CFO, if I can actually put that on and, you know, kind of respond to that. What do you think about that? Well, look, Jess, I think it's certainly true that, you know, your traditional CFO, maybe even most CFOs for that matter, are preoccupied, right, with things like the economy, competitor threats, profits, cash flows, structure yeah. of organizations, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's really important, by the way. I don't mean to minimize any of that. that, that that's really table stakes. No, it's almost uh, like both and, right? But you're talking really, yeah. about the and now. Yeah, a absolutely. You know, I'm going to say, you know, but, you know, the and here is that at the same time, we know that enterprise value is created by producing a product, service, and experience, you know, whatever your company does, right. uh, that customers are going to love, right? And we all know that, you know, in these days, having a merely satisfied customer, it's not enough anymore. You know, a, a satisfied customer, you know, th there's no greater chance on to come back and do business with you or talk to you about, you know, what's on their mind or what they're really missing or, you know, make them loyal to the brand. But when they love you and when they love the whole experience of working with you, that that's kind of you know where the payoff really comes from and i would say that in order to create that experience you know for customers in a meaningful way in a sustainable way over time you know you've got to create a culture or an environment people love working in it goes back to the the thing behind my my yeah. uh, you know on my yeah. wallet right because if i don't love working here it's much more difficult for me to create products and services that my customers are going to love. And if I don't love what I'm doing here and love the people I'm around and doing it with, and then the folks that we're doing it for, you know, like I'm, I'm faking it, right? I can kind of like kind of dial it in yeah. uh, or, or phone it in, right? But look, people are pretty, pretty good. You know, they, they, they're astute. They, they sense that pretty quickly. And, you know, if, if they sense that you're pretending and you're not really, you know, kind of invested um, you, you know, we've, we've all been to the dry cleaners, right? Where you get those hangar things, yeah, they've got yeah. that, you know, we are our customers, right? But do you really believe that every single time? No, that, that kind of stuff is easy to do, right? I'm having right. logos and, you know, uh, right. kind of talking points are easy. But what I'm talking about, Jess, it's imperative. I mean, this is not a nice to have. This is an imperative that you've really got to bring into kind of your thinking, into your day-to-day, -day, really into your strategic plan in a way because it actually it, it directly affects results, right? Which we would call the bottom line. So, so in a kind of a, in a, in, in a snapshot, yeah. you know, that, that's how that love journey for yep. me brings yep. it back around. Well, and I think I'll just call it out. We have a CFO on Smarter and we've been talking for five minutes about love. And I do think that that is kind of one of those elemental shifts of we still need to be able to actually think about the small, predictable, controllable, incremental pieces of the business every single day. We need to be able to have accountabilities to hitting goals and expectations. But you don't have to just do that. You can actually do both, especially if it's truly who you are, right? So every breath, you know, inhale and exhale is one that actually cares, is elevated, and maybe aware of the people around us, not just as cogs in a wheel, but actually people who are trying to transform their own lives. And I also think, too, that, uh, Davinder, I'd love you to speak to this, but I also think that it's really critical for people in positional authority, right? When you have a C in front of your title, right? You're part of that C-suite. How you act and how you manage to that type of kind of emotional quotient that we're talking about, um, people see it through it faster or they authenticate it faster. Like you can't hide and people will, they're always queuing in off of that. Even if you're a little bit more uh, remote as an organization, because, you know, obviously Phenom has people all over the globe, people key into that. Would you say that that's true, that if you're going to take a position of authority, 
you better be really aware that people are going to cue in on you and it matters who you are and how you think and, and treat others. No, without question. Look, you know, I, I, you know we, we talked earlier on about my journey, you know, from bagel buying to, to where I am, you know, and along that way, one of the one of the most profound lessons, I guess I could say that I learned was exactly that, Jess, which is just given, you know, the position that you have, you know, whether it's your title or where you're on the org chart, never really mattered to me from the perspective of I want to rise up the org chart, right? But, you know, once I began rising up it, I realized that, you know, certain roles carry a lot of weight. You know, people yeah. actually do pay more attention. You know, they, they, they listen to you and, and you know, they, they maybe have more listened to you. They actually look at how you behave and how you conduct yourself and how you act. Um, so it became a really, you know, good lesson for me uh, around kind of making sure that I was kind of, you know, homing in on that uh, kind of feeling. And it comes back down to, you know, really, I would say empathy, right? Because, you know, in most, I would say businesses, you know, what ends up happening is you get kind of the leadership folks that are, you know, kind of off doing the strategic stuff. You got the bulk of the organization trying to execute. And there's not always a good connection between the two, right? Right. So you've got these folks that are like trying to do their best work, quite frankly. You know, it's like you know, they're, they're, they're put, giving it all. They're, they're trying to make sense of, you know, what they perceive to be the challenges, what they perceive to be the direction. And they're, they're, they're working really hard at that. But if you don't have that connection, you know, with the strategy piece of it, they could be they could be driving or rowing in the wrong in the wrong you know kind of direction, if you will. Right. So that that kind of, you know, connection to me became really important because, you know, I found that folks are really like thirsty. They're hungering for, for the knowledge about where are we going? Why are we going there? How are we going to get there? Are we going to get there? Right. So you end up becoming not only the guy that you know, or gal that basically, you know, lays out the vision, but you also become like, a, you know, the, the chief storyteller, if you will, about, yeah. you know, what the promised land looks like. You end up becoming the person that's basically going to be the coach, right? Like, how do you get there? And how do you, how do you kind of, you know, cover up, uh, you know, kind of setbacks and things like that. And a lot of times you become the therapist, right? Because things don't always go to plan and you got to be able to kind of get people back on their feet and, and not take it personally and be able to kind of, you know, get up and, and try it all over again. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's such a great perspective, and especially again from a CFO because we are seeing a big transition. I think with CFOs being more incrementally important, not only for just the CEO and the C-suite to direct the financial strategy, but really being a strategy leader. I love the idea of a storyteller uh, inside of that role. And if we think about leadership in the world of finance, let's let's walk into that. And one of the things that we talked about early on is this whole idea of being able to manage and work through change and how it used to be a nice to have, but today it's an imperative uh, to be able to be a change leader. And um, and then I think one of the things I'm hearing from you, and, and we've you know also meant, you've mentioned before, is you know being able to actually be adept at navigating uncertainty, creating optionality. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of. I think that's where you could, as a CFO and a leader, when the pressure is on and you know margins get tight. That's when you can abandon love, abandon empathy, abandon all those soft skills and just go back down into that kind of bean counter mentality. How do you actually navigate uncertainty and create optionality and hold the organization accountable? Talk a little bit about leadership and holding on to both those inside the real world of pressure and those situations, especially when change is, a, is afoot always. 
Yeah, look, and you know, certainly since the pandemic, if there's one thing we've learned, it's uh, that certainly uh, you know change is not only constant, but it's actually more rapid, and, and the velocity yeah. is much higher than it's ever been. So, you know, I would say, you know, these days. Uh, you know, we, we used to talk about adapting to a managing change as a competitive advantage for business. Uh, you know, th this kind of goes back to its, its table stakes, right? It's not about yeah. a, a competitive advantage. It's about that. That's just a basic requirement for survival, right? I would say in these days. But you, you hit on a really, you know, a number of really key, key things there, Jess. I'd like to kind of like double click on, you know, a few of those if I may. Please. Uh, you know, just starting with like leadership, right? I think what you're already asking about is what does leadership look like, you know, in, in the eyes of finance or a CFO? And I would say for me, finance leadership is really all about what you just said, right? It's about navigating uncertainty. It's about creating optionality. And I would liken this like great chess players, right? So finance leaders have to go beyond being linear thinkers, just focused on the next step to capture a pawn or a bishop on the board, to being strategic thinkers who plan multiple moves ahead and perhaps even kind of begin to prompt reaction from other constituencies, right? I mean, that that to me is is the epitome of leadership in finances where you're actually doing it, uh, where, where you're playing, you know, chess, not, not checkers anymore. Yeah, exactly. And to get the organization yeah. to kind of like lift up and start playing, uh, you know, the game of chess because that that's how we all win. Uh, but, you know, what, what does that look like? You know, it, it was one of your questions. Well, look, finance has always kind of been lucky in a way that we've had a place at the table by virtue of controlling the profit and loss statement, right? And if you think about that statement, it really is kind of the be all and end all a lot of ways, right? It's a comprehensive ledger of like everything that the firm does. Um, there's probably very few people, if, if any, you know, that, that have equivalent access or control over this tool. And what I've learned over time, what I would say is that, you know, really good finance leaders, what they excel at is taking that P&L data, you know, that, that's compiled every month, and then infusing it with real-time information from within and outside the enterprise, analyzing it, synthesizing it, converting it into a competitive asset, which you might call kind of new intelligence, right? So now you know something that you didn't know before. And that, that, that's what a really good, you know, finance leader would do. A great finance leader, on the other hand, would take that intelligence and create actionable plans based on where the organization needs to go to meet its objectives. And then you go and you sell this to the business, right? So I've been asked, you know, over the last couple of years, like, you know, what's the most surprising thing that I do as a CFO? And I say, you know, I find myself selling a lot, you know, not selling our software, but actually selling ideas, selling, you know, kind of what the future of the business to, to investors, employees, whoever it might be. Uh, but, you know, it becomes really important to kind of take that intelligence that we may have gained, you know, through the P&L work and, and synthesizing other other data with it. And then basically think, of what, what does this mean to our objectives, right? Can I do something about this to either manage the risk or the downside risk in, in our plan? Is there any waste that I can reduce or eliminate? Because, you know, every dollar that gets wasted is a dollar less that I have available to invest in kind of where it really you know, counts the most in terms of getting our objectives met. The may most crucially, you know, the, the key thing, and you, and you just said this, Jess, is, you know, a really great CFO. They can do all that. They can sell those ideas, but then they've got a loopback mechanism to make sure that once people sign up on that plan, that they're actually being held accountable for it. And there's a way to do that, right? I mean, you don't have to be nasty about this. You don't have to like, you know, kind of basically bring the stick out every time. Uh, but being able to work collaboratively with people, you can kind of get that, get that uh, out, uh, that kind of outcome out of it. Well, it, it seems to me too, though, that when the pressure is on, what I hear you saying, though, when the pressure is on and we're asking for a little bit more from people or we're asking them to make some very hard decisions, 
Don't just turn on the communication then. If you've had constant and consistent caring communication, clear storytelling, helping people see where the promised land can be, but that's happening on a regular basis. When you have to react quickly, when you have to have the organization make hard calls, they actually have that reserve of goodwill for you. And then you're able to actually ask for that withdrawal when the times get tough. I mean, that's how I hear you get the narrative. And um, I don't know if you're a sci-fi guy at all, Davinder. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, are. But Star Trek uh, had uh, four-dimensional chess, right? It was like it's layered yes. on top of itself, and you're yep. playing through the boards, not even on a single board. And it almost feels like post-pandemic, our world with supply chain and financial issues and crises and things like that, it really feels like that's the case. And I think it's so intriguing because I've not heard – a lot of CFOs use storytelling as a key component or leadership trait of their role. I think they've used the fact that they've had access to the PL at a level that most people don't. And I don't mean it to be demeaning uh, to CFOs by any stretch, but almost like a club. Like, I know something you don't know. Because of that, you're going to do what I tell you to do. And, um, and that's it, right? And then we're going to get to that goal. And at what price, right? Because now you have to actually ask for that group January 1st, the next fiscal year to step up and be re-energized, but you just have bullied them to the goal. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the traditional stigma, whether it's a shared service of HR in my world or shared service, you know, internal uh, G&A service of, of finance, that's not a way to actually create that love and that passion and that energy in a constant and continuous changing world. Uh, especially when talent has a little bit more of the upper hand today. Mm. Um, I love your your belief, and I've seen that in action around a both and. That's a big big takeaway I hope our listeners have today is this both and of doing the hard work of a job every day, but also keeping that care, concern, and interest in others a vitally a part of who you are and what you do as a leader. Yeah, if I could just maybe, you know, just pull that thread a little bit more, Jess, right? So, you know, there's a couple of things, right? You're right. You know, we've all been around finance people that have basically said, look, you know what? I've got an information advantage. I can't share it with you, but you're going to do what I tell you to do, right? We've all seen those folks, right? And, And there's a couple of big problems with that, right? Number one is, at least the way I look at this, right, is if I was to do that to the business, I've taken away their ownership as well as, you know, anything else, right? So now I own the problem, right? Mm. So so if things don't go to plan, it it's now I own it, right? And I don't want to own problems, you know. Maybe some people want to own successes more than they want to own problems, you know, whatever it is, right? But, you know, it starts like, you know, putting the ownership where it belongs, right? Because it's not me that actually moves the business forward. I'm just the guy that kind of like, you know, shines the light, uh, you know, maybe where there's some some lack of uh, sunlight, but that ownership is really critical. But the other yeah. part that I'd like, you know, double click on is what you said around, you know, basically going back to the well, if you will. And the fact that you got to kind of get this, you know, done beforehand, because I think what we're talking about is trust, right? Because if you only go to people when you need something, there's going to be a little bit of apprehension about or some skepticism about why you're asking, right? Um, if that's the only time they ever see you, whereas if you kind of take the time to build the relationships in advance, um, you know, you're transparent about what you're trying to do to the extent that you can be, you give them ownership, you kind of, you draw them in, you you know, with, with the storytelling and, and, and with kind of the, the vision for where you're going, that's the better way to do it, right? Because I don't want to have the entire business 
kind of concentrated in me. I've got to have it really dispersed to where it belongs, right? And that ownership has to be where it belongs. But but that, that's maybe another way to think about, you know, kind of why it's important to be able to, you know, yeah. kind of, you know, kind of do this a different way to, to what maybe what we've seen historically. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think about the whole stat and the research is really clear is that when you have an engaged employee who feels seen and heard and empowered to do their work, their discretionary effort is more available. And not only when you ask for the extra mile, you're not, they're not giving it to you because you're asking for it. They're giving it to you because it's theirs to give. And they mm-hmm. willingly do that because of that long-term investment of over time, I have learned that I can trust this person and this role and the request that they're asking, even though maybe what they're asking is really, really hard. Um, and that really brings us to kind of maybe more of a global, but also kind of a phenom, a focused uh, conversation in leadership, because it's again around people. And, you know, we, we work in phenom, obviously helping a billion people get the right job with an AI empowered, you know, intelligent talent experience platform. We're selling across the globe and servicing really big companies to do some amazing work because we can never hire a billion people on our own. We're going to do that through serving customers that love us. And I love how you made that point earlier. But when we think about turnover, whether it's at Phenom or any other company, you know, Gallup did some research that talked about kind of voluntary churn costs the global marketplace a trillion dollars. And some of that's hard cost. Some of that is certainly soft cost. But they also further report that 15% of employees worldwide are uh, are engaged at work, only 15%. 51% of employees are currently actively looking for new jobs. So talk a little bit about that financial impact of organizations that may not be focused on that long-term continuous dripping of care and engagement and value and investing in their people when you have this churn and this revolving door happening in your org. Uh, as a CFO, how do you see that? And is that something that feels real to you at the P&L level? Well, look, Jeff, a trillion dollars. I mean, that that is, you know, it's an <laughs> astounding number, right? I'm not yeah. sure any zeros go in that, but but it's it's a big number. Uh, but you're right. You know, that that is how much U.S. business is. And it's just U.S., not even global. That's, that's right. Businesses. I think you're right. It is U.S. Yeah, right. Or, you know, losing every single year just due to voluntary churn. Uh, but look, you know, at some point, you know, that, that that that's a really abstract kind of a concept. Right? So let me break it down, right, in terms of like what it really means in a more digestible example, if I can. So, you know, if you think about average churn across all businesses, right, is about 26%, according to the same statistics that came out with the trillion dollars, right? So on average, you're going to be kind of churning 26 or let's say a quarter of your workforce every year, right? And by most estimates, the cost of replacing an employee ranges anywhere from like a half to two times annual salary. So if you think about a company with just 100 employees who might make on average $50,000 a year, right, which isn't you know, out of the ordinary these days at all, the cost of churn for that business is somewhere between $660,000 and $2.6 million every single year. Right Now, if you're running a business with 100 employees and you're losing maybe $2.5 million a year, that's pretty, that's pretty big. Right. Yeah. So, so that that's what the hard cost looks like. Now, of course, there's many other costs that don't even kind of you know register on the spreadsheet. Just think about losing uh, your best problem solvers and the impact that has. Your most innovative thinkers, your most reliable winners, right? And then think about the impact on the team that gets left behind, right? Because they've lost like some of the best caliber staff uh, that they were working with, or on your customers, right? Customers, you know, we know, you know, again, think about, you know, 
love and how, how certain customers get custom to work with certain folks at the yeah. business. If they're, they're no longer here. Right, right. exactly. It becomes, becomes a, a huge problem, right? And maybe even depending on like, you know, who's leaving and where they're leaving and things like that, you know, you're going to certainly jeopardize your brand, you know, but you may even like find yourself like in a litigation situation because someone did something wrong or did something inappropriate. So, so the cost are like, you know, even a be way beyond, I would say the trillion dollars of just the hard cost. Uh, but, you know, to your point about, you know, from the CFO's role, you know, what I find even more astounding than the, than the trillion dollar number is that most of this damage is actually self-inflicted and actually can be avoided, right? Uh, you know, survey after survey, will report that over half of exiting employees and every survey they take say that one of the reasons they're leaving is because in the three months before they quit, either the manager, another leader, nobody at the business of any kind of authority spoke to them about their job satisfaction or their future. And that, Davinder, that's right back to what you were talking about when you're only talking to people when you need something from them. And it only is transactional. And it's not, it doesn't get into that personal side or that development side. You are going to lose track of people and they're going to know, they don't feel like you care. So that's actually brings a, that stat brings it right back to the point you made earlier. I think that's really fantastic. Yeah, and, and and it is it is all connected. I absolutely right. You know, but but think about that for a moment, Jeff. Right. So like in over three months, no one's asked these folks like how they feel about their job, you know, and yeah, you know, nobody spoke to them about their future at the company. So if you're the you know the employee, it it it's not a wild leap, you know, to say well maybe they don't care about me, maybe I don't have a future here, and they start looking elsewhere, right? And you know, just just to really compound things now, you know, for for businesses, now we've been hearing about the war for talent for a number a number of decades now, right? But it would appear at this point in time that that battle is over and talent has won. Yeah. In many cases, you know, that balance of power has shifted, uh, I think, you know, probably irreversibly for a good part from the employer to the employee, you know? And, and you know, if you think about this environment, what it takes, you know, you can't be thinking about making marginal improvements to employee engagement. You know, I mean, you all have seen those surveys and things like that. You know, that that's not going to be enough, right? I mean, I think no. at this point, you know, it, it's our job as business leaders, you know, to figure out a plan, uh, like how are we going to create an irresistible organization, uh, you know, that engages employees as, as kind of sensitive, passionate, creative creators that they love to come to work at. You know, again, it comes back to the same, to the same idea. Yeah. No, I, I think um, that actually brings it home, I think, in the sense of really kind of how you even found Phenom and how it just fits so much of what you understand. Because I also have found that when I've worked with CFOs or I've talked to CFOs at conferences, oftentimes some of those soft skills, uh, soft losses, right? The things that are really hard to put against the P&L, institutional knowledge, productivity, loss in consumer uh, loyalty based on someone leaving that they really appreciated. Um, CFOs can sometimes diminish some of those true costs. And I don't hear you doing that. I hear you kind of keeping it all in whole. And do you think that's part of one of those new muscles that CFOs today um, need need to flex harder um, because there is such a trend or such a shift in the power dynamic around uh, talent having a lot more authority inside of the talent pool than the actual corporations that are hiring them today. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, like I think uh, if you went back, you know, 20, 30 years, um, and look, you know, I, I deal with information, right? Like all CFOs, we, we deal with information, right? But if you go back 20, 30 years, uh, that information would have been financial data, right? I mean, that, that that's kind of where, uh, you know, the, the office of the CFO really kind of grew from. 
Um, and interestingly, you had a lot of folks that were accounting backgrounds, you know, back in those days. Um, and that was it, right? I mean, the data kind of spoke for itself. The dollars kind of spoke for themselves. But I would say, you know, as businesses and business models have transferred, transformed, excuse me, from kind of the old, you know, call it the manufacturing, you know, tangible pr production and things like that into this new world of, you know, what we're creating is intangible. Um, it may be a service. It may be something that's not even something we charge for, right? Think about, uh, you know, Meta or Google, one of those companies, um, you know, that, that have really shifted the landscape so much that, you know, that, that P&L based on just dollars and, you know, inventory and raw materials, it just doesn't capture, you know, kind of what's really going on in the business. So, yeah. you know, what, what I think really good CFOs have to do today is they've got to, again, they've got to supplement, you know, the hard dollar data with all this other information and all this other intelligence. And it goes back to things like, well, how are our employees feeling? You know, and I, I, I do a, a weekly meeting with our HR folks. Um, and I, and one of the things I keep asking is like, what does our attrition look like? Right. And then I want to get insights into why that's happening. So that, that's an example I think of, you know, I, I've got to get ahead of that because, you know, by the yeah. time, you know, I shows up on a PL, it's too late. It really happened, right? Right. The only way I can really impact next month's PL is going to be by doing things and looking at leading indicators to be able to, you know, kind of make the changes that we need to make now so that the, you know, the next report looks, you know, more, more, more to what we wanted to see. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's a fantastic, I think, partnership uh, with the HR team meeting with you on a regular basis and also being able to get sightline to the strategies that HR is employing. That actually brings me to kind of a, a big question as we kind of taper into kind of the final few minutes of our time together around, you know, you talked about it early. CFOs have had, uh, based on the position they have and the authority they have across the PL, they've been in a, a lot, a big influential position with the C suite for a long time. Um, we're also seeing, you and I have talked about this, that CHR, CHROs in the last few years have been invited into that same game at a level of maybe um, authority and impact uh, that they've never seen before. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that in the CHROs and the and the uh, HR leaders that are starting to feel that and maybe are reacting a little uncomfortably like, oh, my gosh, what if I can't stand up to the scrutiny? Or do you think this is going to go away? It's now, but is it forever? And I like it, um, but I don't want it to go away. Talk to, a, talk to uh, you know, the HR practitioner out there around kind of that that opportunity that's theirs uh, mm. today inside of the world of business? Yeah, look, great question, actually, Jess, because, you know, having come to Phenom and really kind of seen a lot more insights into HR operations and, and, and you know, just the function, you yeah. know, I've got a firm belief that HR in many, many ways is where finance was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Right. We're kind of getting funding for projects was not easy because it's considered to be back office, just like accounting was back in those days. Right. Because, yes, you know, it yes. was all about PL, you know, things like that, you know, kind of it had this perception of being a low value add kind of a thing. Right. Uh, but, you know, finance, we were forced to become more than that. And the reason we became, you know, forced to do more than that is because the, the, the landscape changed. Right. It was no longer about, hey, can I kind of basically manage costs, kind of basically, you know, tweak a bit more of margin out. The game really became about managing financial capital and deploying financial capital uh, in the way that would kind of give the biggest payoff to the business in terms of strategic uh, or excuse me, in terms of enterprise value. 
you know, so you think about that role from that accounting back office type of a role to becoming much more strategic around kind of thinking about how to create value for the business, right? So look, if I'm now responsible for deploying financial capital, my job is to what do what? Go acquire it, deploy it, and then make sure that I get an adequate return on it, right? That's exactly where HR is today, right? Because if you think about what you're doing, is you've got to go acquire human capital, deploy it in the right way, and get an ROI on it. And I do think that's how kind of the world is shaping up because if we do all those things right from a people perspective, enterprise value will follow, right? Yeah. So I think HR practitioners have this huge opportunity ahead of them if they can kind of right, kind of seize that strategic nature of what's you know being served up to them and, and yeah. kind of learn learn how to deal with that. And and I don't you think it's also because data is more it's more at your fingertips than ever before it's more accurate than ever before especially when automation and AI can empower you to tell the human story like finance has been able to tell that P and L story for years and years and so being able to take that and then relate it back down into the financial outcomes of the organization is a key skill set that HR leaders need to have today especially if they want to build great alliances with the CFO. Because now the CFO isn't putting them in the position of, well, they love their people, but they really don't know the business, right? It's yep. they love the people. They're invested in those people. I love the people too, because I, I built those higher level soft skills in my role. And we are talking the same language and their data is secure. It's stable. It's steady. It's predictable. That I think is where the partnership between the CHRO and the CFO can really, I think, probably put some jet fuel in the engines of any company so a CEO isn't left flat-footed in making their decisions around where or what corner need, they need to go around, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Well, that, I think that's, a, that's the big challenge today is part of it is, is the partnership between those two, CHRO and CFO. Um, that's probably one of the big takeaways is that there's more opportunity there now than ever before. And when you take a hold of that opportunity, the, um, the, the ability for the company to excel uh, is enhanced in a pretty significant way. No, I think that that, that really does hit the nail on the head, you know, and just to kind of, again, pull the thread that you were, I think, uh, you know, talking about a moment ago, Jeff, which is, you know, this partnership between the CHRO and the CFO, you know, can be really powerful because, Look, I, I think, you know, again, if, if you know, the, the days of like distinguishing yourself as a company through deployment of financial capital is now kind of like behind us, right? It's really going to be around deploying your human capital. That'll make the yeah. difference, right? But yet, you know, if you think about um, funding for that, it, it, it's done in like any other or it's done the same way it is for any other project, which is around a business case, right? And, and I think that that's a place where, uh, you know, CHROs and CFOs can really partner together. It's not like building the business case around what needs to happen for the business for it to thrive. And most CFOs, I would say, you know, they, they kind of instinctively know what's needed, but they've got to have the business case to be able to convince a CEO, maybe other C-suite members who may be also asking for, you yep. know, kind of investment as well. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's always going to be a scarcity of funding to like, you know, do everything you want to do. You've got to stack rank, you know, what you're going to do. And the way the best way to stack rank them is to basically say what's the ROI because that's what we should be doing, right? So, yeah. so I think that 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 that's you know kind of the uh, you know the challenge, if you will, behind the opportunity is like can you really kind of step up and and kind of like start delivering those business cases that stand up yeah. to scrutiny and yeah. uh, and went out. 
Well, Davinder, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm certain that we could talk for another couple yeah. hours, not only on leadership, but also how all that applies back to talent. And uh, we're coming to an end on our time. But what I love to do is uh, when I have leaders on the, on Smarter, I love to put them on the spot. I've got what I call the three questions. And there are questions that are about leadership. Could be about a book or a quote that's impactful to you or someone who's made an impact on you or a leadership trait that's important. So I'm gonna ask you, pick question one, two, or three. You're not, you don't know which one you're gonna get. And I want you to respond a real time for our listeners. Sounds good. All right, question one, two, or three. Which one do you want today? I, you know, I was gonna say, I can probably, actually, as I'm looking through these, right? I've, I've probably got, um a concept that underlies all of them. How about I kind of do this a little bit unorthodoxy, kind of give you something that I think may actually hit hit most of these. I wouldn't <laughs> expect anything but that from you. So all right, well, I'm glad I'm living up to expectations here. <laughs> so so here, you know, you know how just sometimes you know in life you kind of go through and you get, you know, kind of you you get this awareness of something. Maybe it's a new concept, a new idea, and then after that, you know, realization, you begin to notice things everywhere, right? Yeah. I was pausing because, you know, really, you, you know, what I'm about to say is, you know, this is exactly what happened. So a few years ago, you know, the big aha moment for me was that, you know, I'd always thought about business as being kind of like hard skills, right? Whether it's finance or operations or marketing or HR, right? All these kinds of things. And I, and I would have thought, you know, like to be better at business, I've just got to learn more of these skills or have more theory behind me. The big aha moment, though, was that none of that really matters at some point, right? You got to have that as a foundation. But what really makes a difference between, I think, great leaders, great businesses, great enterprises or mediocre ones is actually anthropology, believe it or not in my mind right so if you apply I'm an anthropo- if you yeah, apply an anthropological you know kind of a mindset to business situations it is truly transformational right and the way i came across this is i was doing a course at wharton uh with, with an executive program and i went there thinking great i'm gonna, i already kind of have a pretty good sense of finance but I'm learning about marketing and sales and all that kind of stuff, right? And everyone they brought in was an anthropologist. Not a single one of them was actually a business person at all. Hmm. But what you realize, though, is that culture anthropology is all about how do people interact with each other, right? And and the danger is when you kind of do it by the book, you kind of lose sight of who we are as people. You kind of lose sight of kind of what drives people from the gut. And if you can dial into that, it just makes things you know, I think, again, it just transforms things in a way that, you know, it's hard to really, uh, you know, describe. So so once I kind of, you know, had that realization, what I realized is that, you know, I'd read the Financial Times, we've been reading that for like, I don't know, two decades at this point. But there's a, there's an editor, the U.S. editor, Jillian Tett. So she's actually an anthropologist. I realized that hadn't really occurred to me before this, you know, this course, but she's actually an anthropologist who writes at extensively about bridging finance and anthropology together, right? Um, there's a bunch of books you know, that have been written around, um, you know, the same idea, if you will. And then as I kind of started going through my own past and thinking about leaders that I thought really had a big impact on me, what they did differently, it came down to the fact that they were really clued in on the kind of people side of it, if you will. We, we began the conversation by talking about love and things like that, right? Yeah. These are all kind of cultural, anthropological kind of things, I think, that ultimately uh, you know, have a big impact on on who we are as a leader. And I, w- I would say that that's kind of the biggest thing that, you know, has really transformed me from being kind of that, you know, if you will, by the book leader to being a much more on the fly, 
you know, more, more kind of, you know, informal, if you will, and less uh, structured leader. Uh, but people have been responding well to that. You know, I've been able to build some great teams around, you know, finance, certainly, but even beyond that. And, you know, we talked about people kind of giving that extra mile. Yeah, it, it happens, you know, when you do that the right way. Yeah. And I think, you know, that uh, that kind of more casual kind of leader, I also think about um, flexibility, uh, nimbleness, and that whole concept of when we're nimble, we're closer to life and vitality. When we're rigid, we're closer to death and being, you know, easily broken. And I yeah. hear you saying that over the last few years of your career, rather than becoming more rigid in the things you became great at, you actually went out and challenged yourself to learn something new and got this new complete paradigm of taking a look at people in the whole life cycle and story of us, right? And applying that every day to the hard skills that you've earned, right? And that is a powerful way of ending uh, our, our talk today. And uh, again, you know, congratulations for the great recognition um, in, the, in the great city of Philadelphia um, and the work that you've done over the years. But I think so much of it is because you are this lifelong learner that we've been able to get to know a little bit better today uh, with a lot of just amazing motivation. So Davner, thank you so much for joining us on Smarter. And I definitely think we all got smarter together today. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure, and I really enjoyed the time here with you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me and Davinder uh, to get a CFO's perspective on leadership. A couple of things I wanted you to just take away if uh, you were able to listen to the whole podcast. Um, these are some things that I thought were important. Number one is I love the idea that as a as a senior leader, and even as a finance senior leader, it is about perseverance. That in a world of constant and continuous change, Davner tells a story of how he was at a PwC getting bagels for the team when he was just learning, and how he had to persevere through that opportunity to get to those next level up opportunities. But even today, as he's managing large P&Ls and a global corporation, he still thinks that perseverance is a critical a skill, especially in a world of consistent and constant change. I think the other thing that I heard him say is play chess, not checkers. So you have to be strategic, but the strategic idea isn't just a bottom line idea in, for the CFO anymore. It's the people focus as well. So it's keeping the people focus and the bottom line focus in mind every single day, playing chess, not playing checkers, really helping an organization think around, think about where they're going and how to get around the next corner. So I thought that was a really important idea, especially from a CFO's position, is that the Davener is a people-centric CFO and also a bottom line CFO. It's a both and. I also love the idea of a CFO. He talked about being a storyteller, that when you have a strategy, when you have a goal, tell the story, sell the story around an organization, don't just demand it. And when you do, you build loyalty, you build followership. I thought it was a very important leadership trait for CFOs to think about, but leaders in general. And then finally, it's you gotta hold on to the soft skills either, even when the pressure is on. Stay authentic to yourself. Communicate with your team on a regular basis. And then when you get into a situation, where you're in a pressure cooker, what we found out is that when you built relational equity with your people and you ask for that extra mile, that really hard decision from a business standpoint, 
they're willing to give you that extra mile because it's their mile to give. I think these are valuable lessons in general, but really valuable lessons from a CFO. So thank you, Davider, and thank you all for joining me on Smarter, where we can all get smarter together.